morning everyone uh hello anthony hello listeners hello viewers and hello peter finney of potter clarkson how are you today sir i'm very well thank you it's, speaking with you it is friday um the end of the week a very busy week and for context i suppose captain's log as they say in star trek we are on is it november the 4th i think because i think my wife mentioned a bonfire night thing tomorrow night so my powers of production have uh obviously got the, the right date um and i suppose at the end of a week where quite a lot of the tech world have been in lisbon i haven't unfortunately but i've heard some of the stories from various other people and i don't believe you were there anthony or peter no no i was at the um scale up awards from business leader last night oh and how was that yeah, it was good. Had uh, two of the dragons and a very convincing uh, Gordon Ramsay impersonator. Oh, I've obviously made a mark in your evening of entertainment. So, so look, um, thanks for um, for that, Anthony. Um, so, Peter, um, I, as we always start at the beginning, um, and clearly not wanting to go back to your days of school, or well, maybe not not quite school, but just kind of um, conscious of. A, a, a bit about you, how you, um, I think, through your career, and I think there was a bit of an early stage in, in the military, um, how that then morphed into becoming one of the leading IP lawyers in the country. So, you know, a, a kind of a starters for first, as they say, um, on, on, you know, just that, that journey, because it's always good to give viewers and listeners context around how you how you got to where you are now well i am um, from a very young age partly because of my family's background and so my father my grandfather in particular i just wanted to be a fighter pilot and um and i and i had uh, sponsorship by the royal air force and uh, eventually went on to join and uh, was well on my way to that path and became a type one diabetic um and because fighter pilots and there's an expression about how do you know when a fighter pilot comes into the room he tells you uh, the um, I, I, I always thought I'll be a test pilot and if I'm going to be a test pilot, useful to have an engineering degree. I wasn't particularly great at science compared to some of the other subjects, but I did go on to read engineering at Durham, um, joined the Air Force uh, and then had to leave prematurely because I became type one diabetic in my early 20s. So that was the end of that career. And then looking at a, a career guide for engineers, which had all the engineering professions and, and, and a few other um, unrelated ones, right at the back of it was this thing, patent attorney. And, and that seemed quite interesting. You didn't actually have to invent anything or engineer, do any engineering yourself. You just had to help other people, innovators, protect their innovation by getting patents, for example, designs, trademarks, and, and so on. And I thought that seemed quite interesting. What I didn't realise until I got there, and then I got a job fairly, fairly quickly, was that it was five years of slog to, to qualify. Um, and uh, uh, that's, and that's how quite, they get you. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was difficult to get in, but it was even more difficult. It was difficult to qualify. But I, I went on to qualify. Um, and as a, as a young patent attorney, I did a range of work, um, mainly in those days for, for corporates from overseas. Um, you know, if you want to file patents and so on in Europe or UK, and you're in Japan or North America, you use a, a European patent attorney, and that's what I did. But I very quickly fell in love with working with entrepreneurs, um, startups generally, and uh, and then ultimately investors um, who are the other side of that coin in that environment. 
And, um, and I've made that my specialism, which is unusual for a London-based attorney because, you know, perceptions are the real money is working for Procter & Gamble, um, MasterCard. You know, you can imagine all these big companies, mm. Apple, and, and that's where we make our money. But uh, that's not my interest. Okay, good. Well, thanks thanks for that. And then I suppose, you know, that that sort of was a very condensed view, but in essence... There are you've worked for a number of, of law firms in that journey, and clearly now uh, Potter Clarkson's the the latest part of that. Yes, I was uh, I was at a firm called Gill Jennings and Every for best part of thirty years. That's where I started actually, and um, I I left there at the end of twenty nineteen and joined Potter Clarkson in twenty twenty to head up the London office or at least the the patent side of the London office um, with one of my colleagues um, Fiona. And um, but the emphasis was very much you can concentrate and focus and we will give you the support to focus on this um, entrepreneur investor um, products and consultancy side of things that we've been developed and, and, and let us run and give us a long lead um, to, to go and do that. So that was part of the driver for the mood, the move to be able to focus on that client type and the sort of services you need to provide around it. Okay, and so prior to the move, it was more broad, more more corporate, bit of scale up, bit of startup, but I not had about, so much had about of it. No, I'd say you know, I still had over fifty, about fifty percent okay. of my client base was was startups and investors, but I did mm-hmm. have some fairly major corporate work, and you know, with some great friends I worked with there. But I just felt that it was um, that. That side of things was probably best left to to others, given that I had such a focus on on startups and uh, and investors. Mm-hmm. And you know, dealing with investors as a as a patent attorney, most patent attorneys run a mile. It's because they, they look threatening. It all looks like risk. It's all risk capital and mm-hmm. uh, risk, risk, risk. Um, but once you understand it, it's a fantastic uh, environment you're working within, and it's it gives you a broader range of things to do rather than just filing and prosecuting patent applications through to grant. Gotcha. Did, did you find that you were working with startups in particular verticals or sectors um, with with the IP focus or it's was interesting it you say that agnostic? Uh, no, it changed. It changed dramatically in the early days. I think because of my experience from industrial background, I worked with lots of people in the photonics space, and that was mm. a huge growth industry in the UK. Mm. Um, it reached a point where I think there was just too much excess bandwidth. Uh, in the various systems, optical fibers and so on, that it 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 it, it almost died on uh, died uh, died died on its knees. But um, and then what emerged was the money, and they say follow the money. The money was going towards medtech, and then over the last couple of years, two three years at least, you know, the medtech money has gone a little bit towards digital health and digital therapy, digital therapeutics. So I've seen it move, and you have to evolve with it. You know, when somebody says to me. What's your technology specialism? I've done everything from cardboard boxes and screw fixings to quantum computing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to. That's the job of a patent attorney. There are some areas, though, you have to be a real specialist, certain areas of biotech and so on. But in, in my space, the IT and engineering space, you have to be fairly adaptable. I find that when uh, budgets get restrained, uh, that sort of IP protection strategies shift instead of going for patents, maybe they go for a lower cost know-how or trade secret or something like that? Or do you find that, you know, people are people are always willing to sufficiently protect their ideas? No, they're not, because it's not it's not cheap. Um, you're not going to hear from a patent attorney that's expensive, but it's not cheap. Um, but 
what what you get you get some people who will respond going let's shut shop close down our r d budget and obviously our ip budget which is normally associated with the r d budget let's cut that back um smart ones what they do is they say well, we've got 10 patent families and we make three products six of these patent families have got nothing to do with what we make anymore we made them last week we made them last year but we're not going to make them again for whatever reason and that's all some cost and smart ones trim that fat off their IP budget because it's not giving them any value. It's not stamp collecting. You don't keep these things so you can sell them in 40 years. You don't just put them on the wall behind you. If they're not providing commercial value, get rid of them. And then you've freed up budget to spend on the next innovation and if, if appropriate, um, you know, patents, something like the counter UAV technology. Patents, don't forget, get published. You will not see a patent application published that describes how they bring these drones down. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and that's something they have to bear in mind as well. People need to be a bit smarter. It's not patents or nothing. It's it, it might be that trade secrets, not all know-how is trade secrets, but all trade secrets are know-how. And but mm -hmm. you've got to take further measures to protect them than simply say, I've got a trade secret. No, you have to protect them. You have to have yeah. a trade secret yeah. register and all sorts exactly. of things. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a that is increasingly, you know, we, we sit there as, as as attorneys, you think we just want to file patents. No, we're trying to be innovation consultants. You want you might need to file patents because that would suit your particular um, market. It might be the, the, the nature of the invention that it's going to be disclosed anyway. Um, but you might want trade secrets or a combination of the two. But you've also got to look beyond the horizon and think, well, I expect to get acquired in five years time. What do they want? Yeah, I, uh, I read in some of the content that, uh, that I think you guys published that 90% of a company's value can be in the IP. Is that, is that accurate? And we're, Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I'm not an economist, so we're, we're obviously quoting from uh, um, some uh, economists who, who these days will tell you that um, you know the value is in IP. If you think about a mobile phone, um, mobile phones aren't that expensive to make, um, but the reason they're so expensive is because of all the IP that sits behind it in the standards essential patents around how they work and how they can work with other phones and the systems as you move around the world. Um, uh, so I, I think... The perspective here is, is that if you don't make anything, you have it made abroad. You're not a manufacturing. You know, we, we, have, we do manufacture high-end stuff. We don't necessarily manufacture down at scale. It's not that you've got an, a, a business where you're manufacturing and it's all about that and, and turnover and profit based on that. It is an IP-driven business. You own this tech. You're trying to get it made somewhere else, sold somewhere else. And then when somebody buys you, what are they buying? When they bought YouTube, when they bought YouTube, when Google bought YouTube, they could have made a system that did the YouTube functionality with no problem whatsoever. There were no patents in those days on, on YouTube functionality. What there was was a brand. Mm. And even YouTube forgot to file a trademark application. And when they were doing the due diligence, they went, oh shit, we better file a trademark application. Uh -huh. and, and, and so what Google effectively applied was the, uh, bought was the platform and a brand. And the value was all in the brand. Mm. Um, and, um, and we encourage people to think of themselves as, as, as having the IP is forming part of their implicit valuation. It's not done at, uh, you know, the accountancy standards don't really allow you to put much in the way of IP on your books unless you've bought or sold something or you've got licensing revenue. The economists will tell you the thing that keeps the, the money rolling in is the IP that's mm. given you that advantage and potentially kept your competitors away. Yeah, I... I, I... Many, many years ago, I worked with um, uh, Arm, 
Holdings in Cambridge. Well, they were called Arm Holdings then, or subsequently became Arm and then SoftBank Arm. And it was literally IP. It's all IP. IP is the important bit. And yeah, I get it. I get it completely. Um, so, um, you know, so for for you, for Potter Clarkson, you know, in your interactions with the founders, um, I we will obviously have founder listeners and watchers. Do, do you go to events like that show like I probably would have do you have an outreach program do you do do you do events in-house at Potter Clarkson that kind of shine a light on IP and what what you need so I suppose if you could give us a bit more context on on your your kind of outreach well um, that was the national lottery slogan you've got to be in it to win it (laughs) <laughs> so um, what does being in it mean for a patent attorneys? It can mean going to these shows, but um, you know these shows are set up for a purpose, to showcase people's technologies, to, to bring investors together, potential customers. You might not believe this, some people don't like service providers turning up parasitically, hoping to get some work. And we don't mm-hmm. like to feel like we're parasitic because we're certainly not. So we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we treat some events, we're, you know, we keep them at arm's length. They don't want us there. Um, mm-hmm. But what we do do is support networks. So, um, for example, we support Cambridge um, CCG, Cambridge Capital Group up in, up in Cambridge. And uh, they will showcase um, half a dozen, eight or so uh, startups every three months. We're sometimes involved in, in selection process, but we'll be there and we'll help investors understand the background of the IP position. We'll ask questions. We'll meet the companies afterwards. MedCity is a group where we will come along and do pitch training with them so that they understand where IP fits within because they're going to get questions. The due diligence at an early stage is almost non-existent, but it will always go up. And fortunately, if you get it wrong at the beginning, it will echo through eternity and uh, you won't be able to put it right. So we get involved in the networks with, where we are part of the system, where people expect us to be there because we're helping either the investors understand the IP position or the companies become investor ready by getting their IP ducks lined up. Um, and we have to do that across a range of different technologies, you know, med tech, software. So we, could, we can't be everywhere at once. So we do tend to focus on, 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 on where the money is. Defense is an interesting one because you don't sell to the consumers. You don't sell the consumers are not the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're involved with anybody in terms of uh, wanting to get into the NHS, if you can imagine how difficult it is to get technology into the NHS and get reimbursed, I think the defense industry is even harder. Who are you selling to? UK Gov. Um, it's not easy um, or potentially small companies being acquired by the likes of British Aerospace bringing some technology. So we, we like to be on the ground floor with them, but not getting in the way. I was going to say just practical advice for founders. What are some potential screening questions that they can ask when trying to uh, determine if they are sitting in front of a good IP lawyer firm? Good screening questions of the of the patent attorney. Yeah, and that's that's a great question. Um, I, I I do I have given a lecture about um, uh, how to deal with patent attorneys, and uh, it, I'm not sure I'd like too many patent attorneys in the audience. But uh, it's it's what you're really. I'll come to the questions in a moment while I'm thinking in the background. But what it, what it is is that what you want somebody who's got an inquiring mind beyond how it works. Tell me how it works and I'll tell you how much it costs to file a patent. That is not what I would say is good good behavior. And you need to spot that. But of course you as a client, if you go in there where your 
beauty contest question is all about have you got a PhD in the same thing as me and are you as highly educated as me and I fail that um, you're looking for somebody who wants to understand your business can understand the technology at the right level and has an inquiring mind to find out what's going on in terms of your business plans your roadmap your technology roadmap and so on so that the advice can be tailored so it follows that if you're going to ask somebody you know when you meet them there is this element of will you and your team understand my technology because I don't have to pay for you to come up to speed on the whole thing whilst accepting that you're going to have to because if it's not new because I know what about it already it's not patentable anyway so by definition it has to be new which means I won't know it but can I understand it so you, there is an element of that but then you're looking for how else are you going to support me in developing my business and attracting and retaining investment and that then gets into the tactics of how we time things what we file on what we claim when we write it because we've read your business plan so it's almost not a question if they haven't asked to see your business plan or, or, or something about your business plan they're probably not the right sort of patent attorney for you there are some brilliant patent attorneys who are very good at dealing with corporate work they never ask the corporate what their IP strategy is. They're a service provider to get patents filed and get the best possible protection, possibly with long-term litigation in mind. That's a genuine skill, I'm not knocking it. Hmm. But when you meet startups, that's so far off, that's not the current problem. The current problem is limited money, got to make the right messages to investment, to investors, and um, you have to tailor what you do for them and grow with them. So I can't think of specific questions, but I think you'll know if all they're asking you is how it works and keeping you at arm's length and quoting you a price, um, then, and then there you go. That's, that's the thing. I, I see it sort of the way around. So I have, I've stunned some, 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 some people. Can I, can I have a quick, can you give me a quick overview of your business plan, please? Why would you want to go about buy a business plan? You're a sodding patent attorney. I just, you're a service plan. I just want you to file a patent. No, no, no. That's not what we do. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah, um, I just intrigued on. Obviously, I get the, the the verticals and the sectors that you you're focused on, and I suppose the traditional IP areas. Um, obviously, uh, not Wix as a business, we get approached by businesses in those areas, but we also are talking, and you know, I'm kind of there's a, we have a metaverse event next week. Um, I'm just curious the the whole I've grouped them together meta crypto NFT is that something you're looking at doing more skirting around the issue or is it not really core and central to to what you do? Um, it, it's 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 fascinating. I've just um, we've been advising a company who uses uh, um, NFT in order to um, validate the fakeness. Or something. <laughs> so, if you think in the old days, it was absolutely well. It, it was you had real fur, and there was fake fur, and everybody wanted real fur if they could afford it. Then that became uh, that became socially unacceptable, and so fake fur was the thing you wanted. Yeah. Nowadays, the fake fake fur is real fur. <laughs> Does that make sense? So yeah, I'll show you a fake fur, and it's actually a real one because it's cheaper to make a real one than it is to make a fake one. So the NFT is to tell if a real thing, a physical thing, not a digital thing, is fake it, or not. It is basically to tell you that this is a genuine fake. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and looking at NFTs and how they can you know, bind those things in for non-repudiation and uh, um, purposes, that's, 
that's fascinating. And you can think of the same sorts of things with things like caviar and, you know, ca you know, caviar is one of those things of, hang on a second, do you want real caviar or fake or, or, or fake caviar? And it's probably fake caviar because there are all sorts of issues with caviar as well. But um, yeah. NFTs going in there, crypto I've seen less of. Um, that's probably because of my focus isn't there. I, I do lots of stuff in cryptography, but not crypto in terms of currency. Crypto and fintech generally is a huge area for uh, patentability. I've worked for corporates in the past, notably MasterCard, uh, who were embracing uh, all elements of modern fintech. But you could see that there, the pressure was coming from crypto, um, alternative ways of, uh, of conducting commerce and e-commerce in particular, and how they're going to have to adapt to, to, to ensure they keep pace with the innovation that's happening, not in the, necessarily in big industry, but in the smaller companies um, who are free and unencumbered to invent without being criticized. Um, that said, I haven't done very much in crypto. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I've done things with do, NFT. Do, 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 do you think it's going to um, increase the, the focus in, in the future? Or is it difficult to predict? I think it's difficult. I, I'm sure it will. I think you, there are lots of people patenting this stuff. You can go to the patent office and you can you know, search on the subject matter and you can see they'll give you stats on how many people are, are filing. Um, it does, all fintech though, uh, or any computer implemented invention that is distributed, it's difficult to, um, it can be difficult to identify uh, infringers because you've got a distributed system. Uh, it's all very well if you're making and selling watches in London. I'll sue you in London for making and selling watches. But um, if you're conducting a transaction across multiple countries with different computers doing different things, and then you look at it as a process, no one person is carrying out that process. That creates issues for patent infringement, which means patents, which tend to work when you want to be able to pin the tail on the donkey of one particular individual, that's harder. So you do have to be quite clever about how you claim the underlying processes and the key players in it. Who's actually doing the key yeah. steps? Is there enough of a nexus that you can then... Correct. Go for that jurisdiction. Interesting. And the multiverse, you know, from from a technology point of view, establishing that multiverse and that environment potentially, you know, patentable. Um, I think what's interesting is what you Did populate. You meta metaverse. Did I say metaverse? Multiverse. You said multiverse. <laughs> it's all right. We can we can edit that one out. <laughs> I think I just had a, a, a an image of Hema and the. Yeah, yes, and the multiverse. <laughs> the multiverse. I not a Spider-Man film. Um, yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the man. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I'm no, you won't get that. Um, I'm expecting yeah. a baby, and it looks like Skeletor at the moment. Um, it's even <laughs> big. Um, so um, let's go back. The, the metaverse creates opportunities to patent the technology that establishes and hosts it. But what I've seen recently is an awful lot of angst over um, the application of trademarks within the metaverse. You know, yeah. you set up your virtual shopping mall full of people's uh, you know, um, goods and, and, mm. and trademarks. To what extent is that trademark infringement? Now, I'm not a trademark attorney, but I know it's vexing people as to well, how did they create these virtual experiences without infringing third party rights, which you wouldn't think of as applying in this in this domain. But they do. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And then I, I suppose we we've kind of dug into the the founder centric aspect of your role, but you, you do, I imagine, as 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 a firm and and you individually, Peter, you deal with quite a few VCs and investors. We we clearly have that, that them as listeners. 
listeners just from, from from their perspective you know your interactions or uh you know how does it work is it slightly different obviously the communications you're having there if you could just sort of shine a light on on that that I will do um, there's, there's a couple of things i always say that characterizing you know investor-led sort of due diligence and deals firstly they are not buying the ip and that is something that you have to understand. If you're buying an interpiece of intellectual property, the due diligence you do is different from if you're doing due diligence on a company that has IP. And, um, and the, the other thing is, is that I've only experienced on well, kind of one hand where the IP due diligence has either killed the deal, been a showstopper, or has affected valuation. Mm. It's a hygiene factor. Um, a lot of the things that we find in due diligence, which you think would be problematic, are that's fine, but you sort it out post due diligence um, and it becomes a broad responsibility to do it. People get very excited about due diligence, thinking it's going to be a no stone, done, no stone unturned approach, ripping apart the entire patent portfolio, ownership structure and so on. That's not what happens. Modern due diligence and certainly the type that we advocate is it's uh, and I got this from my kids, it's the idea of mind mapping. You put the products and the services at the center of a mind map because those are the things you sell. And then what you do is you go around that mind map, drawing in the links as to what protection you have around that. Do you have any patents? Yes or no. What stage are they at? Is there a predictability of whether or not going to get granted and it's going to cover them? Because if so, that's a tick. What are they doing to protect their know-how and particularly their trade secrets that step up from know-how? Where does brand fit? Are they consumer-led or not? Does it matter? Have you got protection? Are you free to use it? Designs, where does that fit? And then there are these other areas, contractual relationships. What have they done to contract with people that might interfere with all of that so that you don't end up owning the key IP? And that might block you getting the exit that you want. So it's a, it's, it's, and we see, and if you see gaps in that mind map, they're to be fixed. But it's no more than that. And I think investors have, have, have uh, like that approach of um, giving the giving them a sense that the company has taken appropriate steps or could do and mitigate for any, any mistakes they've made, but there's nothing in there that fundamentally ruins the, the whole thing, but they can be set straight with a proper strategy. Strategies of worth is overused. Fundamentally, you know, get protection is your strategy. Tactics about how you do it and where you, where you spend your money and, and make sure that you don't enter into agreements that unwind all of that. And um, so we work with lots of investors where we take that very pragmatic approach. In fact, sometimes we get to the end, we say, well, look, it all looks good. There's an issue here and an issue there. And they say, right, we'll go off and write the report. Now, 50% of the time taken to do due diligence is to do the due diligence, and 50% takes to write the report. And many of the investors we get don't want the report. And, and yet the, the, the lawyer in me goes, I've got to have a report in order to justify what I've done and to mm. make sure that I've got enough down on paper so you don't sue me. Yeah. Mm. They don't work like that. It's a myth. Now, if you're in an IPO you know, on the stock exchange, 400 million, no, you have a probably great report because um, everybody mm. could see you, but not for these forms of due diligence. And it's not an exercise designed to trap the company. It's a collaborative exercise. It's mm, great advice. Thank you. Um, so I suppose we've, we've touched on founders, investors, I suppose the third leg of the donkey is government and legislation um clearly uh, i i read peter you do uh, participate in several committees and 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 do uh, 
uh, form opinion um, around IP. I, I just wondered what what your current perspectives were here. Well, I'll split this into two parts. One is, you know, the legislation and and whether that's helpful or unhelpful in, in the current environment. And just to say a little bit about the government, although I'm not, you know, a political animal, and uh, I only see one element of it. From the legislation point of view, it's a it's a very simple one. The law it's called the 1977 Patents Act. So when was it written? Probably 75. What are the chances the law written in 1975, enabled in 19, enacted in 1977, is still fit for purpose in 2022? Mm. So back then, they thought the best way of protecting software was through copyright. But copyright only protects it to a limited degree. It doesn't protect the underlying functionality. And now we're in a world of machine learning, AI, um, and, and quantum computing, and all the applications across crypto and fintech, and you, you name it, so it's limitless. The Patent Act actually says the following things are not inventions. Methods of doing business, programs for computers, mathematical methods. But then it's got this little rider that says they're only excluded to the extent that they uh, relate to those things as such. We have 45 years of case law, including a Supreme Court decision, or House of Lords, I think it must have been them, that sets out um, how we deal with that rider. Why don't we just get rid of the, at least the exclusion to protection of computer programs? Because you can protect computer software. You can. You just have to get the technical hook correct. And, um, but even at the moment, the, you know, if your technical hook is I'm solving a fintech problem, that's a huge, you know, that tends to be one about speed and capacity and, and so on. And, and um, uh, the, the patent office will see it relates to finance and that's the end of it. You'll have a great deal of difficulty getting it through. European patent office think differently. US patent office think differently. But it's, I know I'm repeating myself, it was written in 77. Mm. Time for a rethink. Uh, the latest um, considerations around computers, uh, particularly AI platforms, as inventors in their own right. Mm. And that's creating a load of issues. If you do drug discovery and you're using a computer and the computer spits out, you know, the computer says yes. Now, at the moment, that's not good enough because you have to go off and do data and do tests and get data. But you look back and objectively, where was the human inventor in all of that? I mean, they programmed it. They did the algorithms. They fed it the right training data. The law struggles because it wants a human inventor. And without a human inventor, there are certain consequences. So that's the first point. The law is really, really old. And they couldn't possibly have contemplated in 77 the direction of travel for technology. So mm. it needs changing. But... We're locked into harmonisation with Europe, of course, um, uh, not because of the EU, um, just because of other treaties. And mm. we're also locked into global harmonisation at some level. But we have definitely expressed our law very narrowly mm. uh, in terms of these exceptions. Could, and, could, could, um, could it change? Is, is there a momentum to change or, or not? Um, I'm not sure the momentum is there at the moment. You hear the government say, we want to protect AI, we want to be able to do that. And you go, I'd love to get hold of George Freeman and say, so why don't you change the law to stop it being, stop the default position saying it's not patentable. The default mm. position should be, it is patentable unless, not it's not patentable unless, because that's almost impossible to beat that negative, particularly at the UK IPO, the UK Intellectual Property Office. Um, so it, it, it is possible um, because we have written in a specific exception, which we didn't need to. The US don't have that exception, so it's not a global standard. Okay. Is, fact, is, the US, to... is the US more broad in their, in their understanding of these things and they're yes. offering more generally protections? Speaking, generally speaking, yes, it is. 
And so we end up with a UK startup with a great invention. You're sitting there thinking, you've got you know, that mind map principle, you've got various forms of intellectual property, but you're probably not going to be able to patent it here, but you can patent it in America because America allows it. Plus America, looking at your roadmap, tells me it's a big market and that's where it's going to be. So let's file first in America. So here we have a UK company, UK Gov saying all the right things, and we have to file first in America to get the strong protection that we think this deserves to stop people copying the underlying functionality. And then the IPO in America. Exactly. From an IP perspective, there are a number of grants available to help uh, startups get going. Um, there's the Innovate Edge uh, IP audit grant, which is a really good one. We do a lot of those where we help people do that innovation discovery, set a strategy, and provide them with a report, which then goes into their business planning and ultimately their fund, their, their pitch deck, if, if it's appropriate to have their IP element there. And then there are IP access grants that follow up. There aren't that many of them. They're quite difficult to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but you need more of that. You need more of lots of other stuff as well. But uh, if the government, the government does say that it wants to support this, but actually the funding isn't there. I, as we always end on a, a note of sort of. Uh, things outside of the day job um i see you have a trombone in the background um care care to tell us uh, a musician a band or is it just just a trombone it's uh, it's my way of uh, of of, of de-stressing um so uh, um, people say i'm liable to blow my own trumpet and they're just wrong it's a trombone not a trumpet you can see that i i actually just love playing music and, and making music and uh, i um uh, perhaps it's not the best thing to end on, but I do occasionally have to take my trombone behind me to the bath, uh, put it in the bath just to wash out the patina of red wine. <laughs> Very good. I bet your neighbours love you as well, Peter. Uh, but they, they, there's a good brick wall between us and the neighbours. Um, uh, during lockdown, I did play outside a bit uh, to entertain some people. And um, uh, <laughs> apart from the dogs, everyone seemed happy. Brilliant. <laughs> IP playing trombonist. Brilliant. (laughs) Fantastic. Look, it's been great to talk. Thank you for me. Anthony, anything from from you? Any last parting thoughts? No, no. Thank thank you for your time and all the information and insights. It's been great. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Chris.